Good day, friends, and welcome to Singing Scientist Episode 6, Delete Facebook? <laughs> Facebook was founded in 2004 and in the few years since has become a universal social phenomenon. I mean, it boggles my mind, actually, when I even think about the fact that people were born in 2004, let alone after that. Um, there are people for whom Facebook has been around their entire lives. They don't know a society without it. Now, for me, my journey on Facebook began in 2006, and that's because that's the year I went to college. Now, this is way back when you needed a .edu, like, official university registered email address in order to join the platform. But of course, uh, after a few years, it, it became available to everyone, and by now, virtually everyone knows about it. There are over one and a half billion People on the platform, that, pro that number has probably gone up since I researched it. And over two-thirds of American adults are on Facebook. So it's universal. Everyone knows about it. And I would argue everyone is influenced by it. Now, Dallas Willard says in The Divine Conspiracy that the deepest revelation of our character is what we choose to dwell on in thought. But what if what we are dwelling on in thought is not necessarily our choice? Or put another way, what if someone else is choosing what we dwell on? What if something else is presenting us with the information and emotions and content, if you will, that we are exposed to? What would that mean? What, what um, consequences might that have for our character and our minds? So that's a question I want to talk about today, and, and I think it's really relevant to everyone. And now, now, for me, my concerns about Facebook and the potentially deleterious effects of it began uh, some years ago. Now, this is all to caveat, I should add the caveat, that all of this is, of course, recognizing the benefits of something like Facebook, of something like Google, of the internet, of, of all of the good things that it allows. I mean, I am talking into a microphone over the internet to you, <laughs> and, and I greatly appreciate that privilege and ability. So this is not at all to say it's all bad or that Facebook is pure evil or, or anything like that. Um, we must resist the binaries. However, it is our task to be aware of what is influencing us more and more in this age. And my awareness began uh, one summer, man, I think it might have been 2014 or so, and I was with a friend, and we were going to, to, to the mall to just look around and, and have fun and maybe buy some clothes. And as I was in the mall, I uh, noticed some male skincare products. I think it was the Lab for Men line or whatever. So I thought, I don't have anything right now. Uh, I'm going to take pictures of this, see if I can get it for a little cheaper on the web, and go home and research more about what products I should get. So I took a picture in the mall, and like 15 minutes later... Uh, we, we went back to the car, and I, and I just scrolled on my Facebook app that was on my phone. And lo and behold, there was an advertisement for this exact product I just took a picture of. And for a moment, I was a little confused. I was like, did I 
post this picture by accident? Like, did, did I post this on my news feed or on my wall so that Facebook would have access to it? I don't remember that, or maybe I did it um, unintentionally. So I, I double check that. And, and before long, you know, a few seconds of research uh, online revealed the fact that no, Facebook, once you upload a picture, you grant Facebook access to your entire camera roll, to everything that's on your photo album on your phone. And in fact, there's no way to upload a picture from your phone without granting full access. They just don't allow that in-between option. So I was kind of baffled. I felt very like invaded. My privacy had been invaded. This is not something I signed up for. It was troubling. And so I deleted Facebook from my phone. But of course, that only lasted so long because I couldn't live without it, right? <laughs> <laughs> it lasted a few weeks, and then I put it back on my phone. Now, that that was sort of a microcosm of a of a bigger of a of a bigger way that these social media platforms manipulate us. Now, Facebook has not only the pictures on our phone. Let's be real; they have every word we've ever typed in a comment or a post every page we've ever liked, all of this information is stored in a readily available format in your activity log. It's on your, uh, your, your profile page for everyone that's, that has a profile on Facebook. You have an activity log. And I, I started getting more and more concerned about what I'm calling Facebook's word data on us. All of these words that we've typed, liked, posted, reposted, and so forth. It has a tremendous amount of word data, and this became really important a few years ago um, during the presidential elections. And it became clear that you know certain groups um, had created games and apps that um, gave the app access to your timeline, which which then granted it information about all of your friends and so forth. And so it was able to gather word data on you and many of your friends. And this data was used in um, to, to influence elections, um, probably on both sides. So, so this is actually a, a very real world issue with many uh, practical consequences. So how does it work? Um, I, I do a little statistics for, for my work in uh, evolutionary bioinformatics, and this is just a classical statistical problem called a classification problem. The oldest rule in the book, or the simplest, most well-known, is something called logistic regression. This is where if you know a few things about someone or about different objects, you can predict whether they fall into one of two categories. So for example, if you know a person's biological sex, you would be able to predict some of the things they might shop for. For example, if you know that someone is a female or identifies as female, that would probably tell you that they're more likely, statistically, to purchase lipstick than someone who identifies as male. Um, 
hair color might tell you something. Age might tell you something. So, so all of these are, you know, fairly obvious traits, and all of them pack a little bit of information about your behaviors, your habits, what your interests might be, um, your location might might reveal some of that. So, so, but that's kind of like very general, like very, very general. What if we knew the frequency with which you typed the word Hillary or Trump or Bernie? Or um, what if we knew the amount of times you liked Sarah Bareilles' posts online? <laughs> what if we knew absolutely everything that caused you to enter into some kind of engagement online? Well, that's exactly what Facebook um, has in their activity log. They have hundreds of variables, hundreds of different types of word data with which they can just crunch you through some very routine statistics to figure out what classification you belong to. Could be with what product you might be interested in buying, could be with what candidate you might be interested in voting for. It could be anything, and they're able to predict it, and predict it very well, given all of the data that they have. Now, lest you think I'm exaggerating the matter, there are very well-known studies published in top journals that all of this is a reality. I mean, journals like Nature and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And I'll just read a few quotes from a couple of those in case you haven't seen these, um, because I think it is so illuminating. Robert Bond and company in a 2012 paper in Nature, and if you want to find these, just Google like Bond because that's the last name of the author, and this title is A 61 Million Person Experiment in Social Influence and Political Mobilization. So look up this paper, and what they did was that in the 2010 U.S. congressional elections, they delivered random political mobilization messages to 61 million Facebook users. And so that just looked like messages, you know, get out the vote, go vote for this candidate, and they were randomized so that, you know, overall there would be balance between the potential candidates and they wouldn't actually influence, hopefully, the, the election. And what they say is this. The results show that the message is directly, directly influenced political self-expression, information seeking, and real-world voting behavior of millions of people. Furthermore, the messages not only influences the users who received them, but also the user's friends and friends of friends. And what they say is that this has many implications, the, the first and foremost of which is that online mobilization works and it changes voter turnout. So this has been documented since at least 2012. Next, there's a 2014 study by Adam Kramer and company, and this was in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Check out this title. Experimental Evidence of Massive Scale Emotional Contagion Through Social Networks. <laughs> what a term, emotional contagion. Okay, so what this, this study did was for a week in January 2012, they um, altered the newsfeed algorithm for approximately 700,000 people on Facebook at random. And what they did was they determined um, whether the content of your friend's posts contained negativity or positivity 
um, happiness or sadness, depression or, or encouragement, just based on the words that were present in those posts. And some of, some of the people who were randomly selected saw more negativity, and some saw more positivity. And what they determined was that um, emotional contagion does occur through social networks. That is, they provide experimental evidence that you can have, be influenced by the emotions of others without direct interaction between people. Just being exposed to the words on a social network are sufficient to alter your mood. And this, even more importantly, can happen without you being aware. They calculate that this may have corresponded, this may have influenced or caused hundreds of thousands of emotional expressions in status updates every day in 2013. <laughs> that is so massive. Now, the next one, this is the third of, of four that I want to mention. This is the one, if you're going to read any, probably read this one. Um, it's by Robert Epstein and uh, Ronald Robertson, also in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And they coined a term called the search engine manipulation effect. So this is more about Google. Um, the, the search engine manipulation effect and its possible impact on the outcomes of elections. So these guys actually ran five separate experiments targeting uh, almost 5,000 undecided voters. And this, th these people were across diverse um, ethnic groups, and this, uh, these experiments were also performed in the United States and India throughout elections ranging from 2010 to 2014. And here's what they conclude. They show that the order in which a search engine gives you results, that is, biased rankings, what appears first, what appears second, the ordering of search engine results can shift the voting preferences of undecided voters by 20% or more. Ooh. 20% or more of undecided voters can, can be swayed one way or another just by the ranking that they see in search engine results. Moreover, the shift can be higher in some demographic groups, and the rankings can be masked so that people don't know that they're being ranked, that they're being manipulated. In one experiment, none of the subjects appeared to be aware that they were seeing biased rankings, and in our India study, only 0.5% of our subjects appeared to notice the bias. Finally, when people aren't aware that they are being manipulated, they actually tend to believe that they have adopted their thinking voluntarily. That is, if you don't think that you are being influenced by these search engine rankings or by the posts you're seeing on Facebook, then you come to believe quite firmly that you have arrived at your opinions on your own without any outside influence. But you haven't. That is really, really troubling. Now... They conclude the last line of the study. It's like, whoa. They say, we conjecture, therefore, that unregulated election-related search rankings could pose a significant threat to the democratic... <laughs> I can't even say it without... It's so understated. We conjecture that unregulated election search rankings could pose a significant threat to the democratic system of government. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, just the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. There might be there might be a chance here for companies to destroy democracy. <laughs> oh gosh. And and there are there are more, but I actually I won't name any more. That's that's enough reading. So, man, we're not making this up. It's possible that search engine rankings such as Google shows you and what news feed decides you will see on Facebook could profoundly influence your opinions, your day-to-day emotions, and so forth. And moreover, that this can happen without you being aware. Now, I'm not saying that um, Facebook itself or Google itself has an agenda. They want to make you sad or make you happy. They want to make you vote for Hillary or vote for Trump. No, that's not what happens. What these companies do, these tech companies do, is simply to get you addicted, especially Facebook. Their job is to get you addicted to their platform so that other parties, other customers of the platform can pay to manipulate you. That's what advertising is all about, right? I mean, companies have to pay to have a billboard. Companies have to pay to have an advertisement in the newspaper, and so on and so forth. The difference is that Billboards aren't constantly analyzing you and custom tailoring their, tailoring their message. Televisions that you watch aren't analyzing you and your feedback. They're not looking back at you and saying, what are you going to most respond to? No, 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 no. Newspapers, television, billboard, all of those things are curated and edited by tons of people so that they can be presented to a great number of people. New York Times, Fox News, all of these bigger corporations, these news organizations, um, are seen by many, many people, and the same content is seen. So if they really, really screwed up, now every, every company does anyway, but when they do, people notice. There's no hiding the fact. Stuff is on record. So the difference is, with Facebook, only you see what's on your newsfeed. And in fact, the same candidate might tailor a message to you that people who have a different opinion or a different psychological profile or different preferences, no one else that's different from you might see the same message that you see. That is links and advertisements can be virtually custom tailored to people who are exactly like you so that you will hear exactly what you want. And that's the real danger here, is that you have been psychologically profiled. I mean, this is not a matter of if it were to occur. This has happened. If you can imagine something, if you can imagine some way that a company could use your data, trust me, it's happening or has happened already. So there's no question, and these studies document it, that our word data, our activity logs, are used to profile us and to custom tailor the advertisements and messages that we see, including which friends' posts we see and what content they have. 
So Facebook, like any other product, I would add, like any corporation, their goal is to get us hooked. Their goal is to get us to spend as much time on the platform as possible so that they can then benefit. This is their business model, after all. It's an advertising business model. They want us hooked to them so that they can then profit from companies or individuals who give them money to advertise and use the psychological data. It's really that simple. Now, what makes this so much more insidious is that Facebook has gotten us addicted. How? By lodging itself between us and those we love. (laughs) Facebook has gotten us to need it by lodging itself into our lives as the primary medium by which we interact with others. Also that it can have your attention when it wants to or needs to show you something. Now, again, I don't think that any of these companies themselves necessarily have insidious plans, but heaven forbid it fall into the wrong hands. Heaven forbid that bad actors get this data and use it against us, use it to manipulate people on massive scales. There's some evidence that it has been used as such. This all reminds me a lot of this childhood book series I read, a trilogy called the Tripods Trilogy. And the tripods are sort of this, without giving away too much, this alien race that that comes to take over the Earth. And um, their first attempt fails because of our military power. We're able to, to beat them back. But then they realize that everyone's watching television and that we're very psychologically impressionable. And so they, um, they sort of are able to take over by brainwashing everyone through subliminal messaging. <laughs> um, it's kind of like that. Like, imagine a world in which everyone... Just imagine. (laughs) Just imagine a world in which everyone looks at screens for much of every day. (laughs) And that these screens can somehow be accessed and manipulated by anyone with the correct tools or money to do so. Yeah, that is the world in which we live. It's the world in which we live, and Facebook is becoming more and more dominant. I mean, it has acquired according to Wikipedia, over 71 companies. That includes Instagram, for which they paid a billion, Oculus Virtual Reality, for which they paid two billion, and WhatsApp, for which they paid nearly 20 billion. (laughs) Facebook is trying to become the uh, monopoly on information about us and all of our activities online so that it can use that data to make money. It's a corporation, and we can't forget that. I mean, like, you hear Mark Zuckerberg say, well, you know, our mission is all about keeping people connected. (laughs) Give me a break. You're a company. You want money. Why doesn't Facebook have, if, if all you're interested in is our well-being and connectedness, how come there is no, for example, option to wipe my entire history? How, how come I can't just delete all of my activity log if, all at once if I don't want that information out there? At this time, anyway, the only way I can see to do that is delete my Facebook profile, and that's why I did for a while. 
And the reason they don't have such an option is because what benefit would it be for Facebook? None whatsoever. They would lose their capital. They would lose their edge. They would lose what makes them profitable, which is being able to psychoanalyze us for people who pay for advertisers. How come I can't upload pictures without exposing my entire camera roll um, on my phone? How come when you click on home, like to get back to the top of your newsfeed, how come there isn't a button just to go back to the top of my newsfeed that doesn't also reload it? <laughs> Anytime you click to get back to the top, it reloads it with something new. It's like, no, really, I just wanted to go back to the top so I could, re so I could go back and see something that was earlier. But then they show you a whole new swath of stories. How come you can't set expiration dates on posts so that they auto-delete in the future? And there's no way to really make sure that your history ever has been deleted. In fact, when I went back and created a new Facebook profile after deleting it for a few months, it seemed to know exactly who all of my friends might be and suggested all of them. So I'm not sure that they even really did get rid of the data that I had requested to be deleted when I deleted my Facebook profile. Facebook is a company and it wants to keep you addicted so that it can make money and that is the bottom line. Now, why do I care so much? Some people might even say, you know, it's kind of a good thing that uh, messages get custom tailored to me. Maybe I like the fact that that skincare product I took a picture of now appears on my newsfeed with a good deal. Or maybe I like the fact, I find it useful that YouTube shows me video recommendations after I watch the one I initially set out to see. That could help me out. True, but... For several reasons, I think that this manipulation does more harm than good. One of these reasons uh, was laid out by Jerome Lanier, who himself is a Silicon Valley tech guy who speaks out against using social media and is very adamant about deleting Facebook. Um, and what he says is this, in behaviorism, in the study of behavior, both positive and negative responses are approximately equally important. That is, um, like getting a shock or getting a cookie <laughs> over the long run are approximately equally effective for manipulating behavior and addiction. However, negative responses work faster. I mean, think about that. Positive responses, positive stimuli like building trust, love, intimacy, those things take a long time to build. Nuance, depth, um, that takes a while to build and it's very easy to destroy quickly. <laughs> On the other hand, negativity, the outrageous controversy, people having um, feuds, um, and people being angry, people arguing with one another, that has a quick response time. And so what these algorithms end up doing is magnifying, magnifying all of the ir irrational, heated exchanges that we see online and not magnifying the good because it takes longer to have an effect. So, I mean, if you think about the past couple of years, people keep saying, oh, things are just getting worse and worse. I feel horrible. Like, we've never seen a time like this. And I'm not 
so sure that that's the reality. That may be the feeling, but could it be because of social media? Could it be because that's what all of these algorithms are trained to do? That's what all of these algorithms respond to. Now, I love uh, the podcast, The Robcast, which is by Rob Bell, and he has a three-part series on what he calls the undernet, <laughs> and by which he means the underbelly of the internet. And um, he, he makes this point. He says, you know, you never hear, it never goes viral. You never hear about a lot of attention being drawn to something like, dude, check out this clip. It's a guy feeding someone who's hungry. <laughs> you never, this is another example he uses. Check out, okay, check out this picture. It's a woman sitting with another woman. The one on the left, she's lonely, and the one on the right is there sitting with her so she won't be alone. Check it out. <laughs> That's not gonna go viral, is it? No, 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 no. What goes viral is a cat falling into a uh, sink. <laughs> what goes viral is somebody making a stupid mistake. Um, and as Rob Bell says, there's actually kind of an inverse relationship between how uh, sensational something is in the moment and how long it lasts. That is, there's an inverse relationship between sensationalism and sustainability. And that kind of brings me to the second point. It's not just negativity that all of these algorithms uh, promulgate in our lives. It's also changing, sometimes subtly and sometimes not, what we value. What we value. Why does it change what we value? Because the only barometer of success the only finger on the pulse of something's working here on social media is the like, the view, the number of engagements, the feedback. But, and I promise this is the last time I'll quote Rob Bell. <laughs> You've got to hear his podcast, A Brief Guide to the Internet, three-part series. Um, because what if what you do in this world, your purpose, your mission, why you're here. What if that doesn't reduce well to the dimensions and parameters of a cell phone screen? What if what you're here to do is the sustainable, long-term good sort of thing, not the sensational? You know, anyone can capture a moment with a cat falling into a sink, but not anyone can do a meaningful long-term project. What if what you do does not reduce well to, this, to the dimensions and parameters of a cell phone screen? You're not going to get that feedback. You're going to start thinking, oh, what am I doing wrong? What, how come this isn't working? You know, well, why aren't people accepting me? Why aren't people responding to me? And all the while, it could very well be that people would, first of all, it, it may very well be that people would respond to you if the Facebook algorithm decided to show it to people. But as we've learned, Facebook, you know, Facebook does not work that way. You don't post something and then friends see the latest thing. No, 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 no. Facebook filters everything and decides who sees what 
because of the content of the posts. So that's not how it works. So for starters, it might be that people would respond if they saw it. But also, let's say they do see it. Maybe people don't respond because it's just the type of thing that doesn't engage them because it's a long-term race. It's not a sensational thing. It is, it's about meaning. It's about depth. It's about nuance and truth. And I've struggled with this a lot with my blog and this podcast. How come I'm not getting the engagement I want? Well, you know what? <clears throat> maybe, this po- maybe this podcast is not for someone today. Maybe this podcast is for someone five years from now who needed to hear this one thing. Maybe the book that you're writing or the uh, art that you're making, maybe that's meant to save someone's life in a decade. That's different. That is a different barometer of a success than number of likes, number of views, going viral, and sensationalism in the moment. And yet the whole system that we're engaged in, this social network that we are forced to go through to get to our friends, is training us not to value those things. Because it can't. Because the algorithm doesn't see it. Because negativity and controversy works better and works faster for their purposes. Why can't the algorithm do better? Okay, last Rob Bell quote now. I promise, promise, promise. There are no reliable statistics for hearts opened and wounds healed. Yes. That is why. I mean, the algorithm really can't even do better. And so our task as singing scientists, as spiritual people, as people who want to be better and and know ourselves, is to be aware of this influence on our lives, to be aware of how we might be changing our preferences, what we value might be changing as a result of the whole phenomenon of likes and views, which was unheard of just decades ago. We are profoundly shaped by what we give our attention to. And again, as Dallas Willard said, the deepest revelation of our character is what we choose to dwell on in thought. And what we have to know, what we have got to be aware of is that what we are dwelling on in thought is no longer largely our choice to the extent that our attention and our time is invested in these online platforms. Now, I think the most obvious way that we get backed into a corner on these platforms is is just based on what we like and we eventually come to hear only you know only the conservative posts because that's what we liked or only the liberal news because that's what we liked or only cat memes because that's what we've always liked now and in the process in the process of this you start seeing more and more of the type of thing that you like and you get backed into a corner where things become even more one-sided, even more extreme, and even more isolated. And the problem is, many people aren't aware of this being backed into a corner. Many people aren't aware that the newsfeed has learned what you want to see before you see it. And so we become unthinking. We start thinking, oh, everyone agrees 
such and such. Or everyone likes that sort of thing because it's all I see on the internet these days. And it turns out that that's not true. Facebook is not a town square anymore. The algorithm has shuffled you along into your corner with your people and you're not seeing the world news. You're not seeing the vast diversity of opinion. You're not seeing a random sample by any means of the content that's out there. You're seeing exactly what has gotten responses from you in the past, and that's what you'll continue to see. And if you're not aware, you will be profoundly shaped by this. And if you don't think so, you're even more at risk. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Imagine someone who has you know, terrible self-image issues, who um, maybe their whole lives have been told they're ugly, and who have not uh, learned to value some of the more truly beautiful things about themselves, about their character and their talent, and so on and so forth. What does Instagram do to a person like that? What does seeing these people who are maybe professional bodybuilders or professional models spend all their time uh, working on their body, what does that do to one's self-esteem, comparing yourself worldwide to the number of likes and the number of followers that someone like that has? You start valuing the things that matter even less. You start valuing the sensationalism, the things that get likes and views even more when that isn't what really matters in the long run. What really matters in the long run is the long-term race stuff, character, substance, the discipline it takes to develop a talent like singing or ballet. All of that stuff is not valued online. And this makes me think of um, a song by Ani DeFranco. Her lyrics sometimes just are killer. And um, the song Evolve, she ends the song like this. I got less and less to prove because it took me too long to realize that I don't take good pictures because I have a kind of beauty that moves. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? I don't take good pictures because, you know, that kind of beauty that I have, it's the kind of beauty that moves. And the kind of beauty that moves and breathes and is sustainable for the long run, that's exactly the kind of beauty that gets zero likes and zero followers, and yet ultimately might matter more. It might matter even more and change the world a decade from now. I mean, you think about Vincent van Gogh, you think about all these wonderful artists who are just way ahead of their time. And I think that that's happening a lot. I think we're going to find that this whole culture of immediacy that is promulgated by social networks, and especially Facebook, is going to prove to be detrimental. And I really am going to have faith that we're going to wake up and start uh, fighting what it's doing to us. So as we come to the end of this podcast, what I want to do is talk briefly about some tools or some action steps or what can we do to keep ourselves from being led like, you know, lambs to the slaughter. <laughs> what are some things we can do to guard our hearts and minds? Now, the first thing I want to talk about is a spiritual discipline. It's the discipline of fasting. <laughs> bear, bear with me. Hear me out here. Um, I first learned about the true meaning of fasting through the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Um, and 
when you hear the word discipline, some people are turned off, you know, they think of aesthetics, you know, whipping themselves or just self-loathing or hurting oneself. No, 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 no. The point of having a discipline is to gain its corresponding freedom. If you make sort of the discipline, if you make the hardship your aim, then that's what's called legalism. (laughs) And you lose the freedom that was supposed to come around with the discipline. Um, so what, what is the true form of discipline? Discipline is doing something with the long-term goal in mind. It's, um, it's deadlifting hundred pounds today so that you can do 150 tomorrow at the gym. It's singing for an hour every day, six days a week so that you can eventually hit a high C effortlessly. It's the discipline of that, the regimen of that that allows you to have the freedom to eventually express yourself, to eventually do an art. And it's that long-term discipline in one direction that gives you freedom. So what, what is the discipline that I want to recommend here? And it's fasting. All fasting means is to abstain from something for a predetermined amount of time. Now, Richard Foster in Celebration of Discipline says this. He says, fasting helps us keep our balance in life how easily we begin to allow non-essentials to take precedence in our lives, how quickly we crave things we do not need until we are enslaved by them. And what fasting is, is just a period of abstaining. And that's how this began with me. I I deleted Facebook for um, over two months. And in that time, um, I was you know, it was kind of a, an emotional roller coaster at the beginning. I wanted to be on Facebook. I wanted to check. It was it was a habit. It was an addiction. Um, I was going to open it and realized I never no longer had it. <laughs> um, but what that did for me was was help me realize how much I need to stay away, or it helped me to realize the importance of self regulation. And so. What I, one thing that I really recommend, and you can choose, you know, a time that works well. Maybe this week is not good for you. Maybe next week would be better. But choose two weeks. Choose a month. Choose six months to be free. Because what society needs is for a group of people not to be in the system, not to be plugged in. We need that outside perspective. We need people who aren't being manipulated all the time so that we can have a true dialogue, true perspectives, true diversity. And what you need, I suggest, is to be free from that sometimes. I think that we would all do well to abstain and to practice fasting from social media quite regularly. And that reminds me of this T.S. Eliot um, poem, and it's called Ash Wednesday, and I just selected a few lines of this. He says, where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here. There is not enough silence. No place of grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. Where shall truth be found? Well, it can't be here because there's not enough silence. And what I suggest is that we would all do well to refrain from the noise, the chatter, the outrageous, and the manipulation of Facebook, at least from time to time. Now, there are some other 
more uh, immediate practical things that you can do without deleting Facebook as well. I don't keep it on my phone. I don't want it to see every single thing that I photograph. I don't want it to see the places I've been or the friends I'm with. Um, so I just don't keep it on my phone. And that also limits how much I can check it. I have to be on a computer to check it. Um, Another thing that you can do is I think that probably most of the manipulation comes through newsfeed. So if you only go to look at the profiles of your friends, you're probably not going to be manipulated as much. It's that newsfeed that gets you. It, that's where their algorithm is really at work. Now, in terms of Google and um, browsing on the internet, there's this great search engine called DuckDuckGo, kind of like DuckDuckGoose, the game. <laughs> Um, DuckDuckGo. And what this does is it is a search engine that apparently, supposedly, everyone sees the same ranking. There's no bias and there's no personal tailoring. So I have set my homepage, not to Google, but to DuckDuckGo. And I re recommend that people do that. Um, you can install plugins for your internet browsers. One is called Privacy Badger. And what that does is it blocks ads and it tries to prevent websites from gaining data on you. Now, you might know that Google itself, if you, if you have Gmail, it reads absolutely every word of every email that you send and receive. That's, in fact, how it sorts things into the primary and promotion and social tabs of your Gmail account. So one alternative, now this is not something I can personally vouch for because I haven't used it, but there's something called ProtonMail based in Switzerland that is supposed to be end-to-end -end encrypted and it doesn't read your mail. <laughs> so you might consider checking out something like that. Now these are all kind of just band-aids, you know, um, treatments for symptoms of a deeper wound that needs healing in the fundamental way that these businesses work. And what Jerome Lanier says is that we eventually need to go uh, probably to something like a, either a paid service or a government-supported service, um, you know, a paid service like Netflix or a public service um, like a library, so that advertising and manipulation and spying on you is not the business model of these corporations. Really, those might be the only way to get out of this business model. So keep your eyes open for that. Um, and the last, the last steps that I want to talk about. Shoot, I said I wasn't going to mention Rob Bell, but here I am again. Uh, he, he says three things that you can do. Three things that you can ask yourself if you find yourself in the rabbit hole on newsfeed, or if you find yourself watching, you know, YouTube video number 20. You started off watching about the science of DNA repair, and you ended up with, uh, you know, watching John Oliver. <laughs> How did I get here? Um, three questions you can ask yourself when you're in the internet rabbit hole. Number one, why am I here? Why am I here? <laughs> how, how did I get here? <laughs> and is this, is this where I want to be? Question number two, am I done? That's a powerful one. And finally, question number three, is there something better for me right now? And what I did for a while was I wrote these three questions on, on a note card and stuck them right next to my computer by my desk. Why am I here? Am I done? And is there something better for me right now?
Ah, love this stuff. So thanks so much for sticking with me on the Facebook discussion. And I know it's hard to separate yourself, but I really encourage everyone to think about how they might be influenced, knowing or not, by the technology that has infiltrated our lives to such a huge extent. And, um, and I really encourage fasting from them, from time to time at least, to keep yourself free. Now, as always, I'd like to ask you, if you like this, please go online, share it, review it, give me five stars, and that will really help this podcast take off. Thank you for being one of my listeners. And as we close with the words of Richard Rohr, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Love you much.